Thank you all for coming. My name is Beth Colgo, and uh, I'm going to talk about working closely with customers on the other side of the earth, and that can mean a variety of different things. I'm going to talk about the context of a company that I worked, uh, that I am working on, as well as some of the work that I did before starting Ship Labs, which brought me to this point. So the uh, this notion of how to work with people who live very far away from us. It, it's complicated, there's no question about that, it's challenging. But one of the things that motivates me is because I think that entrepreneurial energy and methodologies like Lean Startup can really help us figure out how to solve some big problems uh, and to do it in a way that's effective and efficient. And when I say we, this is actually an important point, when I say we, I don't mean we sitting here in San Francisco or I live in Seattle, sitting in Seattle, what I mean is kind of a global we. So everything we do is about co-design. I don't really use that language when I'm explaining, but it's just sort of an important uh, piece of context. So today I'm going to talk about how to listen for the signals from customers who come from elsewhere. And essentially I'm going to tell you a series of stories. I'm going to break it down into three parts. I'm going to leave some time for questions. Uh, I was encouraged to leave a lot of time for questions uh, from someone I spoke to over lunch and see how we do there. But first I'm going to talk about sort of learning how to listen. I'm going to give you a little autobiography there, show you some pretty pictures, and tell you some stories. And basically, it's going to sound like wandering. And I, I want to advocate for wandering under the right circumstances. And then I talk a little bit about when to listen uh, in terms of product development, and then finally how to listen. So I'm going to give you some concrete strategies for, hey, if I actually want to work on problems that are not germane necessarily to my community or meaningful both for my community and elsewhere, how do I do that? So the context here is I started this company called Ship Labs a couple years ago, and what we do is we build low-cost medical devices. And the reason that I started this company uh, is comes out of my earlier work. So I actually, uh, I, I still am a professor. I've been a professor for 20 years. Um, now I'm an entrepreneur, but there's that long history, and I still have a foot in the academy. And what I did for those 20 years, uh, for 15 of them, much as I spent time traveling around the world looking at patterns of technology adoption and adaptation. So yesterday when Reed Hoffman talked about the long game, so I was playing the long game. I actually didn't know it at the time, but that's what I was doing. And I was able to do that because universities are very slow and ponderous and they're lousy at a lot of things, but they're really good at supporting the long game. Uh, and just because work happens in the university doesn't mean it can't benefit the entrepreneurial community. Uh, community. So that's sort of one of my, uh, one of the things that I want to evangelize for. So I spent a long time uh, in part of the work world, uh, in Central Asia. So I think anything that used to be part of the Soviet Union ends in Stan. And I was looking at patterns of mobile phone, computer, internet adoption. So this is a photograph from uh, Tajikistan, which is a small country, about maybe four or five million people. And one of the things that I noticed, one of the things I was wondering around, I took a picture of this, this sign is that there's seven, one, two, three, yeah, there's seven independent mobile providers in this country of very few people. And so I started asking some questions, like why, why would there be seven mobile providers? How can business support that? And it turns out that in uh, Tajikistan, geography is destiny. It's a very mountainous country, and so they have a lot of isolated communities. And so many of these companies would specialize in one community or another or part of the country. It turns out one specifically was uh, uh, geared only for the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, thus facilitating the drug trade, but there are all kinds of things that motivate business. So, that's one. 
very interesting about this work, so I started in 2000, I went for about nine years looking at the spread of technology, is the way that mobile phones just kind of took over. So originally we were only going to look at internet and computers, and then at some point, like in 2003, we were like, what are we doing? This is really all about the mobile phone. And so we were looking at these communities where you had very wealthy people, and then you had people who were not wealthy, but they were all slowly starting to adopt mobile phones. So what you saw was the viability of a market that from the low end with very basic Nokia phones um, all the way up to some of the smartphones. And they would you know, get dumped on the market and then snapped up. And then you think, well, this is a technology uh, that's not necessarily optimized for local usage, so what do we do in response to that? Well, we start having aftermarket pieces that we swap in. I can change my keyboard from English to English and Cyrillic, so now I can text in my native language. So a lot of attention to phones. Also really interested in the way actual physical work and the way that um, people use places, physical places, for information exchange. So a phone booth becomes a little Craigslist. Um, or, and then one of the other things that I do is I, I talk about non-expert innovation. That's one of the ground uh, pieces of grounding for the company. So as I found infrastructure crumbling, so this is what happens, right? Your, your national economy crumbles and your infrastructure disappears, so what do you do? And it's amazing what people can, can build. So this is an example of a, someone living on the sidewalk there in the hospital and building runs out their phone during the middle of the, the early morning and they plug it in. And now you have sort of a semi-public phone. You go and give that person a couple cents if you want to make a phone call at the end of the day and they'll wrap it up right back into their house. So just sort of watching what people do as ad hoc solutions and then what they do as solutions that end up being commercial. So uh, small computers that are created for children in Brazil or also looking at how cultures of repair spring up. So when your phone stops, start, stops working and my phone screen cracks, am I gonna replace my phone? Well, how do we support, if you can't turn away your product that quickly, what kinds of things can we do? So looking at the way people put together uh, little ad hoc electronics uh, repair shops. So infrastructure is another really important piece of what I look at. So this is Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. There's over a million people in that city. And when this photo was taken, which I think was 2008, there was no central power infrastructure. No power. So if you had a light at night, and then you had a generator. So again, thinking, what kinds of opportunities are there there? Uh, what happens when technology use is shared? It's not individual. Uh, so you have uh, use scenarios very typically look like this, where you have those three girls clustered around one computer in a public uh, internet access point. Here in the US, most of our technology use is singular. In many parts of the world, it's more collective. And so how you build, whether it's an app or it's the phone itself, uh, what kind of adaptations would you want to make for a collective usage setting? Uh, this photograph I include only because it was taken in about 2003, long before the Arab Spring, and I just really like it. <laughs> so, but it's kind of prescient in terms of the way that You know, we still like that says in a cafe and in the visible. Looking at pricing structures can also provide some insight about the kinds of technologies uh, that can be built. So pricing for internet, actual internet usage is could be different from what people are willing to pay for games. And so again, drilling down into those fine uh, detailed learnings uh, as one travels around the world can teach us a lot. And actually, the spread of games and gaming cafes was really pivotal 
uh, for looking at how technology spreads, particularly through Central Asia, but it's pretty consistent throughout the world. And there's a lot that comes out of uh, looking at early adopter populations as well as, as late adopter. So one of the other things that um, we think about a lot is this notion of reverse innovation. I'm not actually really fond of that term, reverse innovation, but what it captures is really important. So basically, reverse innovation meaning things, uh, new ideas get introduced overseas and then they gradually make it back to the US. And mobile money is a really good example of reverse innovation. So in 2008, I signed up for Mesa in Kenya, and I could transfer money on my phone and pay bills on my phone, send money to a friend. Super easy to sign up, really fascinating. It's, it's almost 2014. We're working on getting mobile money here in the US. So one of the reasons to pay attention to potential customers who are very far away from you is to also look for ideas for how we might innovate closer to home. Uh, but I also, I like to include warning stories because I am, I'm actually secretly a little bit of a Luddite and I think it's important to remember that not all things related to technology are, are positive. So this is essentially an example of the Nigerian 419 scam that I got on my cell phone. So it was a text message and it said, hey, you want a lot of money? And I said, great, and I called the number, and uh, they said, so now I just need your ID, your uh, ID number, and I said, I don't have a little ID, I have a foreigner, I have a passport, and I said, okay, we'll just give us your passport number, and then your full name, and everything else, and do you understand? And I said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, so I, I hung up. But it was essentially a scam. So the same, uh, same mechanism that's being used for positive and transformative services can be used for other kinds of services as well. Transportation, huge issue uh, in so many parts of the world, so how do you, what kinds of services or products can you put together for people who really struggle to move, particularly from rural spaces, uh, in between places when the uh, national infrastructure for public transportation is not as developed? Uh, traffic, obviously, I mean, that's a problem everywhere. One of the technologies that we built within my lab at the university was a transportation information system, and that came out of watching how people navigated um, a transportation system that was all run through private contractors. So it was impossible to have any kind of central schedule or mapping system. And so what we, what we built was a thing that independent contractors could put on their buses. It was an SMS-based system, traffic, uh, sort of when your bus is coming. And sort of understanding the patterns of use as well as the infrastructure concerns was really important. So moving people as well as moving goods in many parts of the world, really complicated. This is a gas station, for example, so how are you going to think about uh, transportation uh, solutions when that's what your gas station looks like? And then finally, for us, we make products, and so when we look overseas, we're looking not just at what are the needed solutions, but how are we going to solve those problems? And we deal, we make, we make physical things. So I live in the world of atoms, which is a little bit different from bits. So when your stores look like this, where your customers go to purchase things, uh, look like these environments, how do you think about distribution strategies? So that's uh, one of the real challenges and, and iterating quickly within that environment uh, complicated, as I mentioned. Okay, so those are just some examples of sort of how to listen. And so I got to spend 15 years of my life doing that and learning all kinds of things and getting great ideas of what would be good to build. I'm gonna guess that, that most of you don't have that opportunity and 15 years to do ideation is a really long time to start a plan that doesn't really work, but there are lots of people like me. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that comes out of universities uh, 
that can be repurposed and can be useful for gaining some of these insights when people do have the luxury to play the long game. Okay, so the next thing I'm talking about is when to listen. And this is where we get into the nitty gritty of what we're doing at Shift Labs. So when to listen, obviously the answer is going to be both before you figure out what to build while you're building it and then after. We, we all know that. But by listening to these customers, right, listening to different populations, we can actually change what we think is even worthwhile to make. And then what we have to do actually, we have to change how we make it, and then we have to change how we share it. So I'll give you examples of each of those. So the first is this is sort of my, there was a great critique this morning about the, um, and yesterday, about the narrative, uh, the birth narratives that we have for our companies. And this is, so I'm going to tell you mine it later. Uh, so I was in the university and I was working on a variety of projects and we worked on a low-cost ultrasound project and we were working with midwives in Uganda. It was a great project. Uh, I don't know if uh, some of the folks from GE actually funded it and what we did was we built a new UI, built a new user interface. And we worked with these midwives, made several trips to Uganda. But what we also did is when we couldn't get to Uganda is we worked with uh, early sonography students in the US because they were kind of proxy users. Built new measurement. I mean, if you're this is in any degree of sonography here, but we built new ways to do measurement. We simplified it, and then we also built an online learning system uh, within uh, within the, the ultrasound itself. It was great. We used off-the-shelf components, so we weren't doing uh, any of the hardware development. We were just doing software. And the midwives loved it. We took it over, and the midwives who had no sonography training, they could start scanning uh, within like immediately within 10, 15 minutes. It was really quite incredible. So we got excited and then we tried to give it away. So we met with a variety of companies over and over again. And we said, look, we know you're interested in these markets and that ultrasound is, is, a, big, is a big field and here, take this. We know that it worked, take it. And they, and they said no. Um, they said no actually over and over and over again. And I went with my colleague in radiology and many of these meetings. And finally, a VP from one of the companies took me aside because he took a little mercy on me. And he said, you know, we could make cheaper technology. We know how to do that but it wouldn't support the cost of our sales force. So we have no motivation to do that. I thought about that. I know the world has actually changed a lot and there are new ways to reach customers. So I'm gonna guess that there's a better way to do it. And so that's my sort of myth of how my company was born in that moment, that conversation. But it turns out there's a huge market out there and it is difficult to reach, but we know if there's one thing we know from the mobile phone industry is that people who don't have a lot of money will spend it if you build the right things. And it's a huge, it's like five billion people, right? So whether you're gonna build new water filtration technologies or new cooking technologies or new sanitation technologies, there's a huge market opportunity if you can solve this question of how to share it. I'll get there in a second. So what we're trying to do is think, okay, what's even worthwhile to build? Can we build a company around low cost medical devices? So that right there, that's a hospital ward in India. Clean, well-kept for a great hospital. What's unique about that room, other than those beds, there is not a single piece of medical equipment in that room. And you cannot tell me that there is no low-cost medical technologies that can improve care in that setting. So that's what we set out to do, is change what we think is worthwhile to build, build those low-cost devices that can sit in a room like that and help save lives. So this is an early prototype one of our products. And um, so we've changed what we think is worthwhile building. And what we've discovered, and this is the value of the cross-functional team, is that you also
change how you build things. So we're building things for places that are low power, where the humidity is high, where uh, it's dusty, the, the windows are open, they're not, you know, these cl clinics aren't hermetically sealed environments. So we uh, sat down, we had this early version, and this was a later version of this uh, driplet, which actually we no longer call the driplet, but it's a substitute for an infusion pump. If you don't have, if you ever, how many of you have ever gotten an infusion or know someone who has gotten a bag of fluids in a hospital, you know, where you've seen on TV? All right, so here we have infusion pumps. If you don't have infusion pumps, this is what happens. The nurse or the doctor comes and they count the number of drops that they fall per minute, and they often have a watch, so they're counting how many per minute, and then they're doing the calculation in their head of what that equals per hour. And then you can imagine how, uh, how variable that is. So this is a simple thing he puts on. So, so we make it, and this is an early prototype, it's really kludgy and it has two AA batteries, and it's really heavy, and it's just like, okay, our next version can't have AA batteries, let's use, uh, let's use point cell, because it'll open up so many new design options. Obviously, it is the right choice to use that point cell. So we're going around the table, and so I'm there, I have a background in human center design, and uh, there's an electrical engineer and a mechanical engineer around the table, and our doctor, our chief medical officer, who actually lives in Uganda, he's on Skype, and so he's in the corner of the room, and so we're going through that spec sheet, that requirements document, and everything is a trade-off, right? We're like, okay, no AA batteries, obviously point cell, we're gonna be able to design this better, it'll look beautiful, and he's sort of shouting from the computer, and eventually we start paying attention, he says, you can't do that. I'm like, well, why can't we do that? And obviously it's the right choice. He said, no, when a coin cell dies, that device is gonna go into a drawer and no one is ever gonna use it again, because you cannot go out to the corner store and buy a coin cell battery. So we are sitting there looking at this device, and what was obviously gonna be the right choice of a coin cell battery is 100% the wrong choice. So the AA battery, that's what we go back to. So we're changing how we do these things. And then finally, we're changing distribution, how we think about sharing that. So this is a product that we're working on that we're, so our business model is predicated on in-house R&D and then also helping other people bring their projects to life. So there's a big global health NGO called PATH, which is not the same as the mobile app, and PATH works around the world, and they've selected us as a commercialization partner for something called uh, a Phonastra project. What it is, it's a low-cost pasteurizer for human breast milk. So mothers who have HIV can safely give their milk to their babies. This is really important for all kinds of reasons. You can't give low birth weight, birth weight babies uh, formula because they won't thrive. So you need to find ways to make uh, human breast milk safe. So Phonastra is essentially uh, a temperature monitoring system. Those are the component pieces of it. And the way it's been designed has been to be modular. Because again, we want things to stay low cost. So if we're going back and thinking about that distribution model, that makes it impossible to sell a low cost technology what are some of the ways that we can keep a solution low cost and still make it viable? And so this is sort of this is what it looks like. You, the user, you provide your own stove and your own pot. We tell you how to make the stand and what kind of bottles to get, and then we'll give you that temperature monitoring system, which is actually built around a thirty-five dollar Android phone. And so our distribution becomes a lot easier. We've got smaller layer components. Uh, it allows you to reuse things that you already own, and suddenly it becomes more likely to be able to take that low cost technology and. Just as sort of a side note, part of our uh, initial thinking was that we would use 3D printing as uh, part of our distributed manufacturing piece for this kind of modularity. Um, that we would print out things like this and then people would be able to assemble them. If you've done any work with prototyping with 3D printers, you know that often if you try to print something that looks like this, what
what you get will end up looking like this. So these are some of the challenges also for uh, yeah, thinking about how to share things differently. So these sort of rambling stories of how to pay attention um, in the world and extract what some of the problem spaces are that solutions can be built around. Identifying a solution space and then thinking, okay, how do we change what we think is worthwhile to build? How do we build it differently? And then how do we share it differently? Okay, so if you want to embark on this great journey, which I hope you do because there are amazing problems in the world to solve, uh, and it would be great if we could solve some of them. Uh, what are some of the resources that are available? So one of the things that we do is we travel around to these uh, their innovation hubs around the world. So this is a picture of one in Nairobi. There's a huge network of them uh, in countries throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, Latin America, and also throughout Asia, particularly South Asia and Southeast Asia. And so whether it's Cambodia or, let's see, I think uh, somewhere else here I've got a picture of one from Ethiopia, these, uh, these are essentially co-working spaces where people come together to work on both software and hardware products, so they're fab labs as well. And they are resources. They're part of the entrepreneurial community, and we're working with them to do UX work on one of our products. So they're an available resource. You can reach out. They all have internet presences. Um, and so that is one really concrete way that you can connect to uh, potential customers as well as uh, designers from different parts of the world. So this is uh, in Nairobi at, a, at the I hub there, which is probably the one that has the highest profile in the world. Uh, they have a new UX lab that Google helped to open about a year ago, and they sponsor a variety of events. They also have a research arm, iHub Research, uh, which is an organization that contracts with groups, does a variety of activities, can both collect data and test things. Um, so there's just a tremendous amount of activity that happens out of these hubs. Um, and so this is one in Addis Ababa, Ice Addis, similar kind of space that's both co-working, but also has some fabrication facilities where people come and work. One of the other things, and this is sort of more for the software people in the audience, is uh, co-working spaces throughout the world, also in libraries. So more and more libraries are starting to turn into kind of innovation centers. And there's a network uh, around uh, the world of uh, impact hubs, which are another uh, resource. There's also a startup in Seattle, which actually just launched uh, a few months ago, called Discuss.io, and what they do is online uh, qualitative market research, so they are uh, a great resource as well, and there's all their contact information. And so this is uh, some of the, this is about the Impact Hub, and it is a global network, so they're in 60 cities around the world, and that's an example. There's a, that's a screenshot from their website, you can go on. There's a bunch in the US, but they're, they're all over. So basically what I really want to try to do, and I have left considerable time for questions as requested, is encourage people to think about different kinds of problems to solve and to not let the barrier, the barrier of geography and culture be an impediment to thinking about how to craft solutions. And when I started talking, I said, look, I'm not talking about me solving a problem out there. Everything we do is about global co-design. And that's also a really important point. So each of these solutions that I've given here at the end, all of those different iHubs to reach out to, for example. Those are places where people have expertise, they are interested in collaborating, uh, and they are interested in building uh, solutions together. So I'm a big supporter of global co-design, 
of resources out there for you if you're interested in that. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions if you have them. So 